Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 24 years of law enforcement analysis experience. He recently retired as both the Director of Crime Analysis for the Las Vegas Metro Police Department and the Deputy Director of the Southern Nevada Counterterrorism Center. He currently is a school safety consultant with the state of Wisconsin, here to talk about, among other things, justifying the position. Please welcome Patrick Baldwin. Patrick, how are we doing? I'm good, Jason. How are you? I am doing well. Wow. We've got a lot to go over, so let's just dive into it here. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, it was interesting in my my life has uh, never been very linear. And uh, when I initially went to uh, University of Illinois, I never, this wasn't my chosen profession. I was a biology major and thoughts of maybe going to medical school or continuing on in the bi- biomedical field, maybe. And then things get away from you, Jason, you know, how it goes <laughs> when you're young. And so I went, went back to school later and I took a, a criminal justice class. At this time, I was at the uh, wonderful University of Illinois, Chicago, the UIC, the Chicago campus, UIC. And I really enjoyed it. They had uh, a lot of guys, a lot of professors that were uh, uh, decrim. You don't see a lot of decrim degrees anymore. Uh, doctor of criminology. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of these guys were from Berkeley. And uh, they'd been uh, former police officers and they had told good stories. And uh, um, I never thought about being a police officer. I was always very good in math and analytical thinking and problem solving. And I met this uh, wonderful guy who became my mentor uh, named Michael Mall. And uh, we hit it off and I graduated and then he talked to me about going right to graduate school. So I went right to graduate school and I was his teaching assistant for research methods and stats. And I learned so much. I learned so much from him and I enjoyed the, the analytical side of the shop. And it was the kind of the infancy of mapping at that time. And he, he had a unique background where he was, his PhD was from Stanford in electrical engineering of all things. And hmm. I think that was his dissertation was on some engineering aspect, but he always enjoyed cops and robbers. That was his story. I, I came up uh, as a kid playing cops and robbers and that's what he was <laughs> interested in. So he looked at everything from a different perspective. And that, that was kind of instilled on me from him. And I, I carried that throughout my career that I kind of looked at things differently and looked at different analytical techniques and tried different things. And so when I, when I got out of school, I went to the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority, uh, but I started doing some research projects for the the UIC Center for Law and, Ju- Law and Justice it was a project on DARE. There was a neighborhood-oriented policing project we worked on. So I got, I, I, it got its hooks in me. And <laughs> I, I really, I really enjoyed it. And I mean, so the, the research, we did a lot of interesting projects at, at the, the authority is what they called it. And I was the project manager for the Chicago Homicide Data Set, which is the, I believe it still is the largest homicide data set in the world. And it was started by some very influential people in the field, Dick and Rebecca Block and Franklin Zimmering. And, you know, learned a lot learned a lot with that project and was the analyst uh, going in as my first analyst job as like a crime analyst was for a large agency outside of Chicago, Schomburg, and I worked there. So it was just uh, the research and, and learning the stuff from Mike and me and stats. And it was like back in the day at the authority, we were using SPSSX on the mainframe, <laughs> you know, and yeah, I know, I know. I show my age, Jason. I have nothing right. to hide. Yeah. And yeah. I remember when we got SPS for Windows, it was like, it was like, oh man, we actually could bring the laptops to CPD and go through the murder analysis reports and, and change some data in real time. And that was like, that was like whiz bang stuff back then, Jason. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is like 2001, 2002, right? You know, I mean, I think I worked in the Authority in the mid '90s, yeah. so there was there was a lot of a lot of synergy between how we used SPSS and mm-hmm. and uh, their proximity in the in the city. And uh, it was like I learned a lot, and mm-hmm. I still have some published code books where you could you can see uh, the the programs the that are written in the back and. They'll have my name as like the file, like Baldwin mm-hmm. Old Data or something. That makes <laughs> me laugh, you know. So, yeah. So when you get to the police department, because you you're research heavy to this point, right? And you get right. to the police department as an analyst. Was it was did you have the maybe the freedom to really apply some research methods? Or was that, was that, were they more of like, okay, we, we, we don't, we need more descriptive statistics. We don't need, need so much of this research methods. Like what was it like going in from grad student doing lots of research? Now you're an analyst at this police department. You know, they weren't very statistic heavy mm-hmm. and like, you know, they, they weren't like at that time, they weren't like a ComStat agency or I, I really, I never had visibility into like their UCR data. And so I had kind of free reign. I think, I think what, how I got to use my background there was we really upgraded into the mapping at that point. The, actually the, the city was pretty good in mapping. Like they would actually pay interns to walk around the, the suburb and you know, like with a bat, like some kind of GIS backpack, and they would stand in front of a fire hydrant, hit a button, so they could <laughs> like map that map map their hydrants and things mm-hmm. like that. And so, so I worked I worked on upgrading some of the mapping because they didn't have any. So I mostly worked with the detective bureau at that time. So it was like some case support mm-hmm. and things like that. It wasn't. It wasn't until I got to Metro that it was a lot of descriptive statistics, very basic. You know, they were a CompStat agency. There was no consistency of how, uh, believe it or not, how numbers were pulled. It was it was a complete complete shambles. But it was, I mean, it was that part always stayed with me. The part that the stuff that I learned at the Authority and uh, you know going to Schaumburg. Schaumburg was small. I was kind of bored there. I got involved in the IACA when I was there. There was some training. The the I think it was that started taking some of the alpha group stuff when I was there. And so I mean it was a different exposure. I didn't really have any exposure to the CA position. I met people on task force, you know, auto theft task force. I never when when you when you're in grad school and you're doing you're working for the, the authority, for lack of a better word, was like a think tank for mm-hmm. the state of Illinois. So you, you you really aren't exposed to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have some exposure to the police, uh, but it was usually at a much higher uh, much higher level. So I never really got until I got to Schomburg. I wasn't exposed to the like day to day business of how you could meld police work and analytics. Okay, and then so as you move on, then from Schomburg, how does Vegas get on your radar? Someone put a hiring flyer in my mailbox. That was it. <laughs> trying to tell you that someone's trying to give you a message. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know that that crossed my mind. But in reality, the person that had the job before me, apparently she was interested. So they just did a mailer. Yeah. And they're like, oh, the, the the analyst. She was the analyst before. Mm-hmm. He's the analyst now. Let's put it in his mailbox. Mm-hmm. And and I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't married. I, I had really a lot of familial ties. And you know, I, I mean, I told you this on the pre meeting. I saw the money, and I was like, you got to be kidding me, because they pay you money to live in the desert. You know, <laughs> when I got there, it wasn't it wasn't like it is now. And there's guys that got there 15, 10 years before me that there was really nothing out there, you know. And mm-hmm. so the pay the pay differential was substantial. And so I applied, uh, went out and uh, did a interview and uh, everything and pretty much everything in one day because I was out of state. Uh, mm-hmm. I took I had an oral board. I had an assessment, an interview. I, w- I had a physical lie detector <laughs> test. We all know how wonderful those are. And yeah. then I just waited to get hired. 
Um, yeah. yeah. The, the physical always cracks me up because that's pretty much telling me that they just apply the same officer standard to every employee. Like that's, I did the same thing when I was at Cincinnati police department, I had to go through a physical and I had to do all these odd and ends like uh, task. And I'm like, why would I need to do this to sit in a chair all day? Like that's yeah. not, not necessary at all, but Hey, it was a uh, one well, size well, fits you know, all. The thing with me is that it always, it always gives me anxiety because I, I have like white coat and maybe I get anxious when you're going, yeah. nothing good comes from going to the doctor. And, and the thing is, I think really back in those days, they're, listen, just be honest. They want to, mm-hmm. they want to get a urinalysis on you. You know, so mm-hmm. just tell me you want a urinalysis. Yeah. Don't do the whole, the whole thing. Even with Schomburg, I had to go to like some small, some small clinic. It might have been run by the, the county, and it was just like, yeah, I never, I never appreciate, I never appreciate. When I started working, one of my, one of my hesitancies, and I'm gonna jump the gun a little bit. When, when I started doing the consulting with the, with the state here, all of that stuff flashes in my mind like oh my god i'm have to take an oral board and (laughs) am i gonna have to take a physical is someone gonna ask me what what i want to be when i grow up it's just like you know i mean i am grown up i've already retired from a job so it's like the thing about getting a job when you're retired and and when i'm i retired i retired young i mean i was i was pretty much at the top of my game and it had nothing my retirement was a family mostly a family decision so mm-hmm. but yeah when i look back and and i i know there's a portion of our talk where we're going to talk about hiring i know the anxiety that goes with getting a new job and you know, even at uh, my age now in the career I've had, it, it, it still remains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's so just going back, it's 2002 when you show up there at, yep. at Vegas then. Yep. So what you talked about a little bit of how much over the decades Vegas had changed and is still yeah, changing. You know, uh, so what 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 was the particular problems? Like what was the focus at this time in terms of your position? What were the issues that you were trying to resolve? Well, they they were looking the reason they were looking for people was they had opened up two new area command. And an area command is some people Chicago Cosm districts. Mm-hmm. It's the the area command is the building Area command has the sector and the beats, and that's where the officers are deployed. So they opened up two. So I had the, I had the, listen to this. So I had the fortune <laughs> of being the first Las Vegas Strip analyst in a uh, police building on Las Vegas Boulevard. How about that. Yeah. How do you like that? Yeah. Did so, you have a good view? No, we were across <laughs> from Mandalay Bay, same side of the street as Mandalay Bay. But across across the highway, Russell Road right there. But it's by the Las Vegas side. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so that that was pretty cool, you know. And I got picked for that area command because the world revolves around Chicago, and the captain was from Chicago, and he goes, "I'll take the guy from Chicago." So yeah. that's how I got it. it yeah. Like he's like, "I'll take the Chicago guy." Yeah. And then so there was it was just at that time I was just learning and about them and they like I said they did a CompStat minor they had terrible systems when I got there <laughs> I had to learn I had to learn R three dot three three dot two I had never even seen it so I was going back like a a whole generation I you know when I learned Esri uh, I learned on eight. I believe and oh, okay. they were using, they were using three, three or yeah. three, one. And I had mm-hmm. never seen this before. And oh, yeah. um, I can see why I can see difference. why Esri went to the new platform in eight. Yeah. They went to the, 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 the geo, the, the geo databases and things like that at, at, at eight. And yeah. it was a mess. It, it was yeah. a mess. They had some old BI query models that they use to pull out of there. They had a, a Motorola database. They had the they had a small central analytical unit, mm-hmm. and the rest of us were deployed to the the area commands, which I believe maybe there were seven at that time. Mm-hmm. There was an analyst in auto theft, an analyst in robbery, homicide, one in traffic, I believe, and in the, like I said, in a small central, a small central unit. And that was when I kind of realized one of the things that we had talked about 
about justifying. He had I had bosses that knew nothing about analysis, and the only thing they cared about was not to be embarrassed at their Comstat meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't call it Comstat; they called it Crime Management System (CMS), and the cops called it "See My Mess" and the <laughs> Clown Management Show. That's that's what they thought of it, and they weren't they weren't that far off. So the whole crime stuff was, you know, was just not to be embarrassed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so if you weren't, if you weren't, if you were just someone off the street or if you were young, mm-hmm. you didn't get any training per se. And, you know, you wouldn't really learn your craft very well. And I had a, I had a lieutenant. That's who I reported to. We are still friends to this day. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. And, but he had no idea what I would do. And as long as I didn't cause him any problems. And I guess if you're lazy, I mean, if you, if you don't want to really be in the mix, you know, a boss like that is really good because he ain't going to be, you know, once every six weeks when you're up for uh, CMS, that'd be the only time you're really on the hook for anything, you know? Oh, man. Once every six weeks? Yeah, that's when it was. Everybody took their turn in the yeah. hopper. Sometimes yeah. they would do two. And then, then, I, then I started getting uh, doing my own thing. And uh, there was, I started doing a lot of hot spots and doing some ride-alongs. And uh, I wasn't very interested in the CompStat process because it didn't tell anything. And like I said, so you had, say, seven different people pulling their data seven different ways. So the integrity of the process, God only knows what was going on as far as how you were being held accountable. But I started doing hotspot maps, and you're all, you know, I have a funny story. And it's actually in, it's actually like in the introduction, I think of one of Tamara Harold's books and I because I was telling her this story <laughs> where I, I did this hot spot map and I'm like I'm I'm not shy. At this time at this time when I get to Vegas I'm like thirty nine years old, right? So I'm not not some young new jack kid. And so <laughs> I, I I go in there and, and I'm like I got a presentation and then you know, I talk to the sergeant lieutenant. I'm like, hey I wanna I wanna I want to lay this down for these guys and talk about it. So I show this stuff and I'm like, here, here's, here's where we need to deploy our resources. Nora too. It's kind of just east of the strip and it's, it's, it's a real bad area. It's still bad to this day, which, which is the point of the conversation. We're talking 20 years later. <laughs> it's still, it's still a crappy area, right? I'm like, here's your area. Well, the, the guys in the green room, they just bust out laughing, like, like no shit. And <laughs> it was like, it was like, I wasn't offended. It wasn't like they were, they did anything to me or anything like that. It wasn't like they boo and hiss and like it was a bad comedy routine. It was just like, yeah, we know. What do you got? It was like, what do you got? What is my, the frustrating thing was, is like the bosses are like, yeah, we know. So all like for the next week, they would take like hypodermic needles that they seized and they would tape them to my office door <laughs> and they'd be like, Nora too, way to go, Patrick. <laughs> And it was like that, that. That's my that. That's my introduction to something that I became very passionate about for the rest of my career, which was persistent hotspots and problem places. And so it's it's interesting though, because it, it sounds like that wasn't done as like a bullying technique. That was just done done for fun, and you took it as fun, right? It, yeah, but, it wasn't anything. Listen, you know, I I coined the term junior high with guns, probably. <laughs> in 1998 that's what it's like to work in a police department so maybe for younger people it's middle school with guns but i went to junior high so it's junior high with guns it has all of the shenanigans all the hormonal stuff all the clicks and but mm-hmm. everybody's got a firearm or most everybody's got a firearm and yeah. so no i mean that was always my joke i used to mess with them i'd be like i went to junior high once it was okay i don't need to go again you know? Yeah. Now, I it's I find it fascinating in this period of time, and I've talked about this on the podcast before that you're you're in the middle of the aughts, and you're talking about with mapping and Comstat becomes really popular. It was also a time though you have to realize that websites weren't particularly popular to where you everybody knew the data. The reason I think Comstat came to be in terms of accountability is. Officers could no longer say, well, I don't know what the data says because I don't have access to the data. 
they're like, okay, we're going to bring you in and then you're going to be responsible for this data. And then, but it's always funny to me, then you would show them something, whether it's a map, it's, it's a report or what have you in a Comstat meeting. And they would tell you, yeah, like, yeah, I know. And then now, yeah. so now it was like, oh, well, you they were taking away the excuse of people saying like, well, I don't know what the data is. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, so, so for, for Metro, I, I was there for a whole paradigm shift of data with, with their Comstat model from, mm -hmm. from where. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the sheriffs, the, the, the sheriff that promoted me to director, his famous line was, we're an organization that snake bit by technology. And I don't know if it was being snake bit or putting the wrong people or, or getting bamboozled or what, I don't know what it was, but we were, we definitely had a bad run of technology, lack of investment in technology, where then the, then the, then the pipe, then the payment came due where, you know, where technology just needed to be upgraded but we missed several basic upgrades. So now it's a complete shift in how things look. And, you know, we, we were always judged on UCR. UCR comes out, mm -hmm. now uh, mm -hmm. And I worked on Metro's. I was the project manager from our UCR to Nibers transition. Eventually, I did get the UCR program. I had avoided it. Uh, I avoided <laughs> it for years, practically jumping out of burning buildings to <laughs> not be responsible for UCR. I didn't want it. Mm -hmm. I got it. I was called into the another sheriff's office and the like, this is yours. And because it was so frustrating for them that we didn't we didn't have a our comstat wasn't CR beat. So it was more the traditional because you know uh, UCR categories are kind of like a you know a stone collecting moss mm -hmm. they collect where like especially like burglary upgraded shop lifts to robbery and things like that. And so we would actually, towards at the end, I built a data integrity unit where we would clean that stuff up. And so we had like a working set of numbers based on Nevada revised statutes that met the tradition because we were trying to manage the organization, not mm -hmm. the stats. And so, but, but it had a price to pay and that when the UCR came out and these numbers were matching, there was always a, a news conference or it was too many questions. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so eventually, eventually we did build the UCR stat page and all the warts that it had. But at that time, by that time, I already, I already had with, with some of my top analysts, we had already built a lot of the triage mechanisms that using cost for service data that you and I had talked about to manage deployment strategies and, and things like that. So the Comstat, which at this time it was called Action, all crimes that impact our neighborhoods. <laughs> and then the cops called it asses. You're gonna like this one. The cops called it asses clenched tightly in spite of numbers. So that was then we had action. And <laughs> so so then that just stood on its own. And then we managed we managed the agency with a firearm density report, a street robbery report, a disorder report, and whatever whatever other ad hoc reports that we needed. And so that that kind of take took the gotcha out of a lot of things that we were doing. But it was a process, and it was a very frustrating process because we did have such bad systems. Mm -hmm. You know, we had, and everybody has disparate systems, and then we we would send out the bid to have someone build something on top of all these. And so we could have some federated queries and, you know, we were, I said, we were definitely snake bitten. And, you know, I had, I had some Esri guys come into town, you know, wonderful, wonderful people. And we were showing them stuff and a couple of the developers, they had never seen three dot anything. <laughs> and they couldn't believe one that we were still using it. And two, how well we were using it. And we, we, and that's the thing. I think, like I said, I think my background with, with Mike Malt, I mean, that guy, that guy taught me so much. And he, the visualization of data was, was big for him. He gave me a book one time. I think that's what actually was called the, the visualization of quantitative data and, you know, how you present your data and 
we we were we were making uh, what the thing that amazed me with with the with arc three was we were taking screen captures of hotspot maps of street robberies mm-hmm. and we we made movies. I had a really <laughs> talented analyst that liked to do video and stuff at his time, and he would take the screenshots and then make them into a movie. And so we could show during Comstat how the hotspots would move and what time of day that the street robberies would move and where they would move at. And it was really cool. We were showing that. And like I said, they, they, they couldn't believe it. And it was, I guess it was great that they thought that how well we used them. It was also sad that we had to we had to fight the fight all the time to get what we wanted. Yeah, I I I've told the Esri guys at these conferences that they should set up a computer that runs three point three or three point two just to show people <laughs> the way it was. And for some other people, it's going to be like getting out the old Nintendo. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. I mean, when they they became a good partner, they became a good partner for us. And we we worked closely with them. They were always they were always there for us because they're not that far either, you know. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things when I met I met this gentleman Carl Walters, and Carl was the fusion director, fusion director of Boston of the Brick, and that's how I first met him because that's part of my part of my life was that I was also the deputy director of the Southern Nevada Counterterrorism Center. So those were those current jobs. So they weren't mm-hmm. like. I went from one and then I did the other and they were both going on at the same time. And, and they were, they were a good partner. Ezra, Ezra was a really good partner to us. Hmm. I want to get to that path of your career in a second, but before we leave Comstat, I'm curious with data availability, with many departments going over to Nibers, do you think there's a place for Comstat in today's police department? You know, I never got to see Nibers play out. I had seen, we had finished, we had finished it, but now we are working on the presentation of what concept would look like, right? Mm-hmm. What, what the front, what the, what the dashboard would look like, what the front. So I mm-hmm. don't know if, if what I envisioned it to look like played mm-hmm. out, but I envisioned, because you're going to have a huge spike in numbers right away, mm-hmm. right? You pull the plug on your UCR Comstat, and then you go right to Nibers. I mean, someone's going to pass out. I mean, you're going to literally, <laughs> I mean, the numbers, that's because, I mean, how, how the construct of Nibers is, you know, there's no hierarchy rule, right? So mm-hmm. it should be intuitive that the crime would go up. And so that was a messaging thing that we talked about a lot. I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I read a lot and I still read a lot. I still read a lot, you know, and I, I academic Twitter is uh, very, very active mm-hmm. and you so a lot of guys will post stuff. And so I stay in touch. I, I mean, to me, no, I mean, it's, I, I, to me, a better, a better model. Cause like there was, I played a real large role in, in it where I would present the data and I, I had a seat at the table and I would talk and my section we would put together together the slides, and sometimes we would do the agenda. So we played a strong role in it. Mm-hmm. I would rather focus on the you know the problem places and problem people and the problem behaviors, mm-hmm. and and not so much worry about and let the numbers take care of themselves. And and mm-hmm. and within within those areas like that Nora too, that that area is still I I, I have friends and. I hear things and the retirees have a great network of tech strings. And so I see what's going on. There's another area behind the stratosphere called uh, Naked City. And Naked mm-hmm. City was a was a uh, lousy place when I was there. And it's still a lousy place. They had a murder uh, last week. And I know this because someone called me up when they were on their way going to, to a <laughs> meeting to talk about why wasn't this handled properly because of the shooting before. So when you're still having those kind of problems in your problem places, such as Naked City, you know, what what is a CompStat model, right? And I yeah. think that's where you're going towards. What What is a CompStat model if you're not, if you're still having those kind of problems? Yeah. Hmm. All right, let's go more towards the route of counterterrorism and gangs. And I, I see here on your resume, another great group that you guys have named here is the metro area gang intelligence center magic now did that have 
Did that have a funny street name just like the other ones? Well, I was the magician. So, <laughs> how, do you, how do you, yeah. No, the magic was just magic. And, and really, magic came about was because we got gang net. Mm-hmm. And this is when I moved over to, I was only in patrol at the South Central Area Command and a little under two years, I think. And then I went to gangs. Mm-hmm. I was at gangs for like three years. And I know one of the things you wanted me to talk about was the best job I ever had. That was the best job I ever had. That was the most fun I ever had. That They were amazing, amazing guys. And they had, they got gang net at that time. And with gang net and our proximity to LA, they got, Cal gang. And so that was a big, that was a big deal for us. And so magic was born out of a captain and I came over there and I stood up magic and I sat in this, I sat all by myself in this lonely conference room (laughs) because that was the Intel center. And it was me and people coming in there eating their lunch or (laughs) kicking me out of my office so they could hold the meeting because it took a while for it to catch on, but it had a hotline. And any officer at any given time, if he had what he suspected to be a gang member, he would call and then I would answer the phone or someone would answer the phone. Obviously, I didn't work 24-7. And then we could look them up in gang net and we had a note for Cal gangs and we can confirm, confirm if the guy was a gang member, who he was with, who his associates were. And then if he wasn't, then we could, then we could request them if they could document it based on the criteria that existed at the time, if they mm-hmm. could document this person as a gang member, then we'd ask them to do an FI and forward it to us. Yeah. Hmm. Now, and I guess in terms of Vegas gangs, right? I, I, I have this vision of like Goodfellas or some, some like very Hollywood story of that Vegas should be that story of gangs should be totally separate in the in the story of gangs and it is not the same as maybe telling the story of gangs in like chicago or new york or la but that vegas has their own spin in terms of gangs is like is that how it was or is was gangs in vegas more more closer to what you were seeing across the country oh yeah i mean first of all the any organized crime was handled by a completely different unit that would have been our mm-hmm. intel intel unit and mm-hmm. they had an organized crime unit in there completely separate never never knew anything about what was going on with them our gangs we had some homegrown gangs in fact the naked city area had a Hispanic game called BNC, Barrio Naked City. So we had some homegrown gangs, but we had every LA gang, Bloods, Crips, Serenios. We didn't have a lot of Norteños from north of Bakersfield, which is, was roughly the dividing line back then. But we had a strong Southern California gang influence, and that's why it was very, very important for us to have a gang net with a cow gang node, because there was so much synergy between us and Southern California. You got to realize, I mean, it's a three-hour drive, so it was it was close. And then if you're in the Inland Empire, which is, you know, that area, San Bernardino County in that, I mean, that's even a shorter drive. So it was traditional, traditional gang, traditional gang stuff, absolutely. Hmm. Hey there, everybody. This is Albert Mesa, and I'm here to ask you a very important question. Have you ever done a sit-along with the dispatcher? If the answer is no, and you're currently an analyst, you're missing out on a huge piece of the data puzzle. Not only will you open your eyes to how data is captured, entered, and coded, you'll see how calls are prioritized and dispatched and get a true feel for CAD data. You'll get to see it in a whole new light and use it as a tool in your analysis. And who doesn't want to sit with the true first responder who probably saved a life right before they sat with you? Hi, this is Angela Backer-Hines, and I just want to remind you to give yourself a break. As analysts, we strive to have all the officers in our department utilize our skills, and we typically want to be everything to everyone and do everything we can each day. But work is much more manageable and less stressful if you embrace the fact that it's okay to take some time for yourself, and maybe even to say no once in a while. In analysis and in life, you have to give yourself a break or you risk burning out and then you're no good to anyone. So just remember, it's okay to give yourself a break. So then you take on the role of manager. 
as a counterterrorism center. So that's a different beast altogether, right? And talk a little bit about that transition as you move from gangs on to being the manager of the counterterrorism center. So what was going on at this time was they were building the fusion center. So this is like 07. Mm-hmm. And so DHS has, at, at this point, started investing in the fusion centers. And so they needed the crime analysts to bolster up the fusion center. And so that's, that's what was going on at this time. So they created a manager position. They had taken the manager that had our small our small central unit. They had brought him over there, and then they wanted one more manager to handle swing shift and graveyard. So I worked like from 5 p.m. to 3 in the morning at that time, mm. and we were we were getting a lot of new crime analysts, and because that was going to be their staffing model, that was how they maintained a 24/7 footprint was to hire crime analysts. And so we were just getting 10, 10 new analysts. So I was training new people like crazy, but it's hard to train people, you know, I mean, you know, they worked 11 to seven or 10 to six. And so you would take some initial training and then, then you'd be relatively on your own. And and that wasn't sufficient. So I spent a lot of time training a lot of new analysts in a very difficult environment to train. And it was, it was me and only me that had, that had (laughs) that. The, the, The day shift people were easy to train, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're awake and they're captive. <laughs> swing shift people weren't bad. I, I, I work swing shift. I, I kind of have a swing shift kind of makeup to me anyway. Mm-hmm. And so swing shift was easy, but those graveyard people, they were, they were hard to train. And so I'd be with them till like two or three o'clock in the morning. And the, they had different responsibilities than a traditional crime analyst would because we had a watch desk and they would have to sit and answer the phone at the watch desk. One of the things that we made our bones on uh, to be successful is that anybody could call us and that we could do a tactical work workup within, we called it a 20 minute tactical workup on any person, place, or thing that was going on in the Valley. So we were used by SWAT, um, anybody else with a search warrant, um, because we had, at this time, we were bringing in all the systems um, into the fusion center. And so that was that was back in the day with, and I think a lot of them still are this, some of them kind of poo-poo the crime aspect of it, but it was all crimes, all threats, all hazards, however you wanted to put it, all hazards, all threats, all crimes. That was the initial intent of the fusion centers. And so Las Vegas Metro took that seriously, and we had a strong crime, you know, profile there Mm -hmm. and and we did very well we did very well at it we had you know not a lot of turnover but it was was difficult it was difficult to to manage and Mm -hmm. you know i i was kind of anonymous i mean because i never saw a lot of people and (laughs) this is when i i would get really frustrated you know when i would show up and the day shift guy and a lieutenant, and you could, you could pick any random lieutenant at that time, they would decide what the unit structure would look like. And it, I would really lose my mind because <laughs> some of the things they came up with defied math, things like that. And, I, and I'm like, so this is where I kind of kind of started thinking that we need to get out of this rotating police supervision of people that are taking these jobs to check a box because it looks mm-hmm. good, right? Mm-hmm. That was over. I was over. And at that time, we were called ANSEC. ANSEC, and, and no, they didn't make fun of it, at least not to me. It was just the <laughs> analytical section. It was just the analytical section. And we had, you know, there was the counterterrorism analytical group and there was the crime analytical group. And it was like, you know, the, the brain capital was in the analysts. It wasn't in the leadership, right? And and they were there to get promoted. A couple of them mm-hmm. were there for the passion of, of the job, with the hope of maybe coming back as the captain or something. But they they never they, so no one was doing us any favors. When, mm-hmm. And it was very frustrating. Like I said, I'd get stuff presented to me in an email, and it'd be like. Well, you can't do that because math doesn't allow you to do that. Um, you can't do that because 
that makes that makes no sense from a process standpoint, you know. And it was very, it was very, it was very frustrating. Everything was new. We did a lot of training. We got, we went to a lot of conferences. I stood up. I got tasked by the sheriff and the abuse center director of standing up in 2008 our school violence initiative, mm-hmm. which I which I did. And it was a, we had a lot of partner agencies at the Fusion Center. It was a really, really good place. And with the school district, uh, PD, and uh, our partner agencies in Henderson, North Las Vegas, um, we stood up a, a school initiative and uh, we did, we worked really hard improving it. And you we see in my profile, my, I think in teen, we were a finalist for the Herman Goldstein Award. So I was always very proud of that and kind of led me to where I am now, not to jump ahead, but that a lot of good programs came out of that. We started really working with uh, the precursors to, to terrorism, and a lot of precursors to terrorism are crime in nature, you know, a break-in, an unexplained break-in, a, things like that. So we really worked on our mapping at this point. We we mapped, we mapped everything, everything we could think of. You know, the FBI had their their business sectors. We did pipelines. We really worked on our, our mapping. And, and we would put out, if something were to happen, like when Aurora, Colorado happened, right? We, we could put out our movie theaters. Within, within 20 minutes of being notified of that event, we could have officers in the area of our movie theaters. And then once we blasted that out, then we could put which ones are actually showing Batman. I believe that was the movie. Yeah. So, so it really, the criminal precursors, the terrorism worked really well for us. And we could justify having a, having a, a high-profile CA program within that. Propane tanks. There was, uh, we had a bunch of propane tanks stolen right before New Year's Eve. Big event. You want to you wanna see a mass of people go to, uh, go to Vegas for New Year's Eve. And mm-hmm. we always work New Year's Eve. That's part of the deal you sign up for. You're never off on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. So we had a bunch of propane tanks being stolen. And we, we got a lot of mileage with our with our federal partners because we did a good advisory on it. What was being you know, done with we, the uh, what was being done with the propane tanks? Well there there was uh, there's part of the terrorist playbook was something called the gas limo project and this was taken out of some intel stuff from i think in the mid 90s where they would take a limousine and fill it with uh propane tanks and other igniters and and that would be used to as a bomb and so so with that background and that was the thing you know you you had to learn you had to learn the tp stuff you know because the only way to use the ca portion of your brain was understand the CT portion. And so we created these infrastructure queries using calls for service data where we would run once a day leading up to New Year's Eve. We would run it every four or five hours and we worked with our vendor and keywords would pop out like propane would pop out, you know, like a color, you know, you'd have, you'd have taxonomy like bomb, things like that, you know, and then We'd have our, our buildings and stuff geofenced, and the analysts would review and see what made sense to look at. And, and eventually that got published by DHS as like a best practice of, what, of how to incorporate CA, calls for service data, for a CT mission. In this instance, because that would have been 08, you're talking about the downturn in the economy, and the housing bus, it was actually for heat. And we had always had, and we always worked well with our fire agencies, our fire service. And we got a lot of feedback from them once we put out the initial blast and the product that they were seeing it from an economic aspect, that people were losing their houses and being foreclosed on. And that this, these, uh, because I like the ice fish, you can take a propane tank, a tank put an element on top, turn it on and ignite it. And it's a really good heat, good heat source. And so that's what they were doing it. So it was the housing downturn. It was economic. It wasn't nefarious, but it, it worked well for proof of concept that we could do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, then, as mentioned, you move on to being director of the Southern Nevada Counterterrorism Center. And then you were doing dual jobs of being the deputy director. 
as as well and so that you're you're holding a lot of hats here but you're you're all the way up to director now so you you at this point in time you have a lot of responsibility you have a lot of people reporting up to you right yeah yeah and my role within my role within the fusion center was usually again the director of the fusion center would change like every couple years Mm -hmm. but there would be five of us that never changed so that's why I had the deputy director job because I'd been there relatively since the beginning and there were a couple others and one of them happens to be the director now they actually civilianized the position and so we had captains would come and go and counterterrorism lieutenants would come and go and mostly as the as the deputy director I was responsible for his and oversaw a lot of the the analytical portion I started our real-time crime center, got that off, got that off the ground, responsible for technology. And you got it. I think you can imagine when, when it's Las Vegas and it's the counterterrorism center, we had everybody and their brother that wanted to show us their software. <laughs> and so we actually had to come up with a protocol to keep everybody at bay because, I mean, everybody was always, always there. And then, like I said, you know, the director of crime analysis came about and I presented it to my boss at the time. I worked with him. He was one of my bosses when I was in gangs. And I said, I, I think I should be made the director of crime analysis. And we stopped this rotating lieutenant thing because it's really not paying not paying off for the unit. And he said, I agree. And the sheriff and the undersheriff agreed. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy, but that then I became the director of the crime analysis unit. And really more out of, like I said, I, did, I have young kids and I wanted to have a different environment for them to grow up in a better academic. But I was very tired. And part of what was tiring is throughout my whole time at Las Vegas Metro, the analytical component always was justifying its existence. Mm. And so you're talking, why do you have this many people? What are you doing? You know, I run my whole area command without ever using one of your products. Congratulations. You know, (laughs) things like that. It was the politics. We made a lot of changes. I, I always believed in being self-critical. And when you get comments like that, how are we, how are we missing the mark on our products? What do we need to improve? We, we revamped everything over and over again. You know, we, you know, more focusing on problems, incorporating more problem people into our products, you know, incorporating more problem behaviors. And, and then there was, so there was a, a new administration and, and, they they had different visions and I was I was very frustrated and I was losing people. That was the other thing I think when you're successful. Um, you know, I'm a big sports guy. You look at sports teams when they're successful, you lose your offensive coordinator, your defensive coordinator, so you're rebuilding. I would always lose my best analyst to a different type of job within the agency. So they had created an analyst position that was above the crime man was position. And it was very frustrating for me because I would lose a lot of good people. And then again, uh, I would lose them. And then their work products would be run by a captain or a lieutenant that didn't understand analytics. And then in my opinion, it was subpar. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was very frustrating. And I used to say, I'll do the work. Just, just stop poaching my people. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> if you want to have someone in IAB, and you want to look at like social networking of the bad apples and, and things like that, I'll do it. Cause mm-hmm. we had, we had went to the Naval postgraduate school and were involved in their social networking, you know, program. And so we, we had some of the software and we were working, but again, you know, if you got bad data and you got bad data systems doing any kind of an A is very difficult. You got to hand jam all the data. And so there was always, you know, this constant cloud over the analytical unit of its utility, its purpose, how many people, you know, we were always having to write memos about justifying positions. It was, it was Groundhog's Day for many, many years. And my understanding is it's occurring again. I, I have, I had a great management team under me. They're still there. And I, I hear 
from them that they're in another round of justifying why they have so many people. And they have more people. I think I had 11 people for, for a crime balance. I think I had 11 people uh, when I left because that was COVID. So the budget, all the boom mm-hmm. and doom, you know. So anybody that left wasn't being replaced. And I lost a couple people to IT of all places because I, I was developing data analysts at the time. You know, we were writing Python. I mean, I can't listen. It's, it's like go see a senior cop and ask them if they can arrest someone. Half <laughs> of them, they, they're lucky they can drive their cars, right? I <laughs> I couldn't do Python, but I knew enough and read enough that I needed somebody to write me some scripts that would automate some of my processes, you know? So mm-hmm. And so people snag those people up. So you... You develop people and then bam, they're gone. And it was, it was, it was frustrating. So there was a high level of frustration when I was leaving because literally for the, the 18 years, it was constant, constant justification and, and, and that, and how we overcame it was we just stay focused on the mission and we always were taking self-critical looks about Maybe we, we rewrote all kinds of products. One of our products, and I believe, was just, again, it was a homicide report. We used to do an annual homicide report. One of the analysts from Metro just won an IACA, an IACA award recently, a couple months ago, for a homicide product. And I'm, I'm sure it's not the homicide product that I, I rewrote with the analyst at the time. I'm sure that product has been, again, improved. But that was kind of what we instilled in the unit, that we're, we're always not so much reinventing itself, but improving, rewriting, taking a look, trying to remain relevant. And like you said, the visualization of the data, messaging of our products, how we getting them out there. You know, you got mar- to market what you're doing. But there was such a, Jason, it was such a high level of frustration. And you're talking, you know, people's lives, are there going to be layoffs and what are they going to do? And where am I going? And when people are they're concerned about their their lives. I mean, am I going to have to am I going to have to work at night? And I don't want to lose my shift. And we have all these all these things in balance, and it really really takes its toll on a managerial team, and it, especially when it is as frequent as it was with us. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's you. You try to control what you control, which is good customer service. And I think one of the things that is missed is sharpening the saw, spending time on process improvement. And one of the yeah. things that I think is frustrating at during my time at police departments is like people like the routine. And so th- they just always expected the same report or the same data, which if if the analysts weren't doing anything or they were just clicking a couple of buttons, it's not just it's not that big a deal. But when they're right. doing this clerical duties to get these reports out and then you're questioning who, who's who's actually looking at these reports or who's how do we make this better? And then, then there's pushback and like, oh, I just want it the way it's always been. It's it's really frustrating in, in that regard to then hear like, oh, we don't use your stuff. Yeah. Well, I went through a, I went through a whole cycle that dashboards, dashboards were going to replace like one dashboard was going to replace like five analysts, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was going to be like, and I'm like, I go, you don't even know what an analyst does. I mean, <laughs> like you just said, it's like, okay, so the data is there. So you're going to tell me the cop is going to say is going to take his time and he's going to make sense of what all this data is that the dashboard replaces a problem solving critical thinker. I don't think so. And, and that one, that was the thing. It's like, that's part of the frustration is like, yeah, I get, I get technology. I've been pushing us in a direction all along, but it's not the panacea that you think it's not like you can replace people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Very good. So as you mentioned, you retired and now you're in Wisconsin. What took you to Wisconsin, by the way? Well, I am a native Chicagoan. Mm -hmm. I did a psyops on my wife. My wife is a native Las Vegan. Mm -hmm. You don't don't meet a lot of native Las Vegans. Probably now you do. but Mm -hmm. And she, there was a show called Discover Wisconsin that I had direct TV because I had to watch stuff from my homeland, the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So I always figured when I retired, I'd go back to the Midwest. So, so I would, there was this show called Discover Wisconsin and would show 
all the beautiful things about Wisconsin. She would watch it and I would sell it. And then we came here on vacation and I didn't want to go back to the Chicago area. That's where I'm from. And uh, so we, we settled on the Madison area. She likes to work in state government. She's an attorney. And uh, so she likes to work in state government and the state capital is Madison. So we live in the Madison area mm-hmm. and it just worked out. You know, my pension is good and we shouldn't have a job when we moved. She got a job right when we were in the process of moving, but it was family. If I could have taken a sabbatical, like if this was an academic, by the time April of 21 came around, I was raring to go, man. I was mm-hmm. itching to, I was itching to do something, but we live in a, we live in a small town, about 6,000, 7,000 people, um, relatively rural. You miss a lot of stuff. You miss good East spots, you know, we got a Culver's and a McDonald's in town, and that's about it. And, uh, you know, that was the thing. We talk about Vegas, how Vegas changed from there. When I first got there, Vegas was huge gaming culture, gambling, and anything to do with gambling. I mean, it's weird. You go into the grocery stores, and there's video poker machines. The gas station was gaming, gaming. And but it transitioned to an event-based place, you know, Electric Daisy, a Super Bowl, NFL Draft. Mm-hmm. sports teams now it mm-hmm. was it was a completely different shift in what the economic engines were and that was something as the fusion center and as the analytical component that was something we had to adjust to too but mm-hmm. uh, you know like i said if i could take a sabbatical chilled out and and everything i i probably could have kept working but i was looking for the next step and i'm mm-hmm. very passionate about um, violence reductions within our schools. And I, I review school safety plans. I work with administrators on improving their plans, having reunification plans. And, you know, it's, it's nice. I mean, we landed in a nice spot. My girls are five and eight. And again, go back to the original hour ago where I said my life has never been linear. I didn't have my first child, but I was 53 years old. So it's, it's nice and it's nice for them. And we enjoy ourselves. And it's kind of sad that they'll never know the, the career I had, you know. And they, they ask me all the time, what did I do? Because now they just see me. I work like 21 hours a week. But they don't know about the the awards, the awards that I, the awards that I got. Or that when 1 October happened, that I was gone and didn't come back until the next day because I opened up our deployment operations center. And I was working that event and, and things like that. Just, mm. just maybe that they, they knew some of what I had done because you can't explain. Everybody thinks you're a cop, right? How do you tell your yeah. kids? Like, like you were in, when you were doing Haida, how do you explain mm-hmm. that to your kids? They think you're a cop, but it's just like, because yeah. you know, as you go in your career, most of my friends are police officers because these are the guys that I came of age with in the agency and they become under sheriffs and assistant sheriffs and, and and that's 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 your cohort yeah i remember the look on my son's face when he was seven and he found out that i used to work at a police department <laughs> he was yeah he was shocked oh good deal just out of curiosity so what was worse for you getting acclimated to the desert heat in vegas or getting reacclimated to the cold when you moved up to wisconsin the heat Mm. the heat the heat's oppressive you know and we would still come still come back mm. like we have we have a family resort i mean i don't know where you grew up but chicago the you know they call a fib there's a the f word illinois bastard <laughs> how fibs are and so when you live when you grow up in chicago you always go up here you go for a week fishing right you know yeah. same place so i'd come back and do that so i'd go home for christmas so I would get into it, but the heat, the heat was unbelievable. I can remember like when I'm still friends with the guys that I worked with in Schaumburg, I talked to them and again, they're deputy chiefs and chiefs of various agencies. And I'd be like, I remember when I first moved there and I got off, I got off of work and it was like, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night. And the reading on my truck was like one thirteen at like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, this is like ungodly. And then you do get used to it, but your golf game, but does you can't affect your golf game. And it's just, yeah, to me, it was, to me, it was the heat. Oh man. Now I'm originally from Pennsylvania and I am a total winner wuss now. 
Like it is, there's too much time spent in Florida now that I am just a winner wuss. Yeah, we had a we had a string of single digits last week. We got about in a in a week between like three different storms. We got about 18 inches of snow. Yeah, and it was nice. And then now it's in the mid 30s and the fog. Yeah, I always worry about my wife. You know, I mean, she should. We should do a dual podcast about weather because how does she how does she handle <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, but she went to Seattle Pacific University. That's where she did her undergrad, mm-hmm. and she loved the Northwest. And she was always like, "Go to the Northwest. Let's go to the Northwest." And I'm like, you know, I was like, I want to go back. I mean, yeah. go, I always thought I'd go back to the Midwest. I didn't want to go to another place where I didn't know, I didn't know anybody. Like, mm-hmm. it's, I can, I have cousins around here, and I see mm-hmm. my family more. And it's really been more of a thing on her. But she loves it here. I mean. It's like it's like a blast from the past. Like I told you, it's got some Norman Rockwell, yeah. Norman Rockwellian things. How, how Halloween is done, Christmas in the Square. But it just it was just a total lifestyle change. And and, and that one October, it took a took a lot out of the agency. And I think how everybody viewed their lives and things changed changed after that. It was such a shocking event for everybody. We always worked so hard at, you know, threat mitigation at events and have something like that happen. Mm. And it was, you know, I think it changed everybody's, changed a lot of people's perspective. I think in some ways it did mine. I was just I retired a couple of years early, but I'm proud of the work that I did. I think I, I think I built up a pretty good unit. I think I'm very proud of, of Gina, who was my main, my main manager when I was there. I mean, she She's carrying on the the torch. Of course, they they got rid of the director position. How do you like that? So mm-hmm. they cannibalized that in a cost cutting measure. So she's the manager of the section now, and mm-hmm. I think she's got her hands full. But she's a wonderful person, and she's real what? bright. And what's her last name? Gina Fackrell. Mm-hmm. She's amazing, and yeah. she she kind of I think I think she has I think she's got 17 people all to herself right nice. now, and that that's exactly. I think I'm not, I'm not sure. Speaking of building the unit, one of the things I want to ask you before we get out of here is you obviously throughout your career, you hired a lot of analysts and I mentor people. I, people that listen to the podcast are either looking to move up or maybe they're looking to get into the, the profession. So I'm curious from you as the decision maker on who you're picking or suggesting to pick to hire what do you look for in a good analyst? Like, what are what are some things that are high on your list that are maybe some must-haves, or maybe if you have a philosophy or types of questions you ask? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yes, you're right. I, I try to be involved in the the oral the oral boards as much as possible based on my schedule because it was important. And I'm in, and if I wasn't, I made sure. Gina was there. I looked at problem solving and critical thinking and analytics. If that could come out in an interview, and when we were, because of regulations and stuff, everything had to be the same questions. wasn't really a freewheeling type of interview or board. It was a structure and it was ranked, and you know, so we try and get. I would try and get as much out of that as I could. I like to see someone that was that had done some work prior. And I'm not mm-hmm. talking, we hired a lot of people off the street. Um, we didn't really have a lateral position. I was the lateral position. I might've been the last one to kind of close that gap. Uh, it was something that we tried to work with HR on to get that back because it takes so much time to train people. And so we were taking brand spanking new. So I like to see someone that logged on to Esri has a lot of free stuff, or like you said, at that time, you go on the web and check Esri out. You can IACA, IOEA. I, I always, I liked IOEA. I did Fiat and a couple others. I liked IOEA. Like, not necessarily that you had to take all those classes, but you were aware of them. You know, sit along. We had a lot of department members that would come in, and because somehow this happened, that they thought this was a stepping stone. I really didn't think because you were a good records clerk that that you might be a good analyst. And if you thought you would be a good analyst, you needed to show me and put some work in. That would be to do a sit along with some analysts. And like you said, there's there's stuff that you can do, Esri. But I tried to get out of it in a in an orbor situation. Your critical thinking and your problem solving out of it, and you can do it. But you're not going to be. It's not a perfect system. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But there, you can you can kind of get the take of the person from that. But I I we that's what I looked at mostly was because you can teach them the nuts and bolts of pulling data. Most everybody knows how to use a spreadsheet or the Microsoft suite, but you can't teach someone how to think. You can, mm-hmm. uh, but you're going to be much more successful with the people that have an innate ability to think critically and problem solve. What about education? Yes. You had to have one. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, degree-wise, we required a degree, a, a social service degree, you know, a social social science degree was fine. I liked math. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I really got big into data analytics at the end. I mean, someone would have walked in with a, with a computer science. I mean, I, I'd really take a close look at them. It was mm-hmm. rather infrequent because they there's quite a market for them. UNLV over the years got a really strong master's program. We started seeing a lot of good good graduates from their program, like some excellent some excellent graduate students out of UNLV. John Jay, we had some of them. But I went to graduate school. You went to graduate school. It was I mean I've seen some some of the biggest knuckleheads I've ever had had <laughs> PhDs or things like that. So I wasn't so tied up on that personally. All right. Well, our last segment of the show is Words to the World. This is where I give the guests the last word. Patrick, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Well, my words to the world would be take care of yourself. You are working in a police environment or you hope to work in a police environment. I lost three friends. I'm on the job. One one took his own life. It was a very tragic event. And I, I've seen that people, you really have to take care of yourself. And especially as you get more more seasoned in your career and you're involved in more kinds of, of things, you can work in a unit that sees very sensitive things. It does affect you. You need to take you need to take care of yourself. And that would always be my my thing is that I know agencies are looking at the well-being. They're taking a closer look at that for for the officers. But you know, being involved in a police agency. That that kind of that kind of environment can affect the, the civilian personnel also, and so I think you need to be self-aware of how your job can start affecting you. So take care of yourself. If you do have a friend that you think is kind of in distress, please find that person some resources. Very good. Will I leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Patrick. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Thank you, sir. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.